Merry Christmas. Today is the celebration of Christ's birth. The waiting has ended. Christ has come. Light bursts forth into our dark world of sin and pain. How does the light of God come to us? God's light comes through Jesus, who became a human being, just like you and me, so that he could show us the way back to God's divine love and light. Fill our hearts with joy, O God, as we celebrate the birth of your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the weeks of waiting, which now makes the joy so much deeper. We praise you for the glorious gift, this child, so humble yet almighty, so tiny yet so powerful, so vulnerable yet so holy, so human yet fully divine. May our hearts be filled with the joy of his coming through Christ our Lord. A reading from the prophet Isaiah. For a child is born to us, a son is given. The government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor, David, for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. May our joy at Christ's coming fill our hearts and overflow into our words, thoughts, and actions so that the joy and light of Christ in us will be witnessed by all, drawing them to the wonder of Christ. Amen. Amen.
Amen. Merry Christmas and good morning. Before you're seated, take a minute and greet those around you and welcome them to the house of the Lord this morning. Well, we do want to welcome you to the house of the Lord this morning, and uh, we're glad that you've joined us for this Christmas service of worship. I just want to call your attention to uh, the schedule of activities during the holiday in the bulletin. Um, there's not a lot happening for the next uh, couple of weeks, no activities tonight, no Wednesday evening activities. Next Sunday morning, Pastor West will be uh, preaching, and, uh, and you can see the schedule of upcoming services there. And the church office will be closed uh, in the, the days listed there. And then on the, the back of your bulletin, there are some prayer concerns. And uh, we want to uh, remember those listed here um, and keep them in our prayers throughout this week. Our first scripture reading is Psalm 98, which can be found on page 592 of your few Bibles. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of singing, with trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn. Shout for joy before the Lord, the King. Let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. Stand and join us as we continue in worship together, singing our praises to God.
may be seated. I'd like to invite the first through fourth grade Sunday school children to come forward. They've prepared a sign language piece for us. And we are all going to help them. We are all going to sing. We're going to sing the first verse each of Away in a Manger, Silent Night, and the first Noel. And you'll see the words on the screen. You guys ready? Wonderful. I'd like to invite the ushers forward now to receive our morning tithes and offerings. And following the singing of the doxology, children ages two through five may be dismissed for Children's Church. Please stand and sing with us. Praise God.
Heavenly Father, on this Christmas morning, we are overwhelmed by all of the gifts that you have given to us, but most of all, by the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. All that we have is but a gift from you, and we pray that you would help us to be grateful and to give with thankful hearts this morning, but a portion of all that you have given to us. In your name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Hold on now, I gotta take a deep breath. Don't know what to say when I look into your eyes. You made the world before I was born, but here I am holding you in my arms tonight. Noel, Noel, Jesus, sorry man, you. To the face of my Savior, King and Creator. You could have left us on our own, but you're here. I don't know how long I'm going to have you for, but I'll be watching when you change the world. your hands are still so small someday you're gonna stretch them out and save us all morning. And as we go into our time of prayer this morning, uh, the altar is open. If you would like to come and meet him at the altar, you're invited to do that, or you can meet him right where you are in your pew. Glorious and incarnate God, we give you thanks this morning for the opportunity to worship together in this place, for the excitement of celebrating the miracle of the birth of Jesus once again this year, for the hope, the peace, 
the love and the joy that you bring into our lives. This morning, O Lord, our Savior, we ask that you administer to each one of us right at our point of need. Lord, you know us because you are our creator. You are our redeemer and our sustainer. We pray that you might search our hearts and know those things that weigh us down this morning. And that in your wondrous love and infinite wisdom, that you might lift our burdens. For those among us who are experiencing illness or sickness, we pray for your healing touch. For those who are discouraged or downcast, we pray for hope and peace and joy. For those who are grieving the loss of loved ones, we pray for your comfort. This morning, we look to the future with hope, knowing that life is full of possibilities because of the birth of the Christ child who came to save us all by giving his life for us. Thank you, Lord, for becoming incarnate for us. Yours is a life that brings liberation to captives, freedom to those in slavery, hope to those who are downtrodden, and strength to the weak. Lord, we look at the news and we see trouble and strife, turmoil and violence. But when we look to you, we see hope for the world, we see hope for our nation, and we see hope for the church. And so this morning, in the name of the one who, come, who comes in the form of a child, we pray together the prayer that you taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Our New Testament reading this morning is from the book of Galatians, chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Hear the word of the Lord. What I am saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world, but when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under his son, under the law, excuse me, that we might receive the full rights of children. Because you are sons and daughters, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So you are no longer slaves, but sons and daughters. And since you are sons and daughters, God has made you also heirs. This is the word of the Lord.
You may be seated. Please pray with me this morning. Startle us again, O Lord, with the truth and beauty of your love promised and given in Bethlehem. Open our hearts to that transforming and liberating love. In Christ our Lord, amen. Well, it's Christmas Day. Christmas is in the air. Some of you have probably opened your presents already this morning. Others of you are hoping that I won't preach too long so that you can get home and open your presents afterward. I love this time of year. I love the decorations, the lights, the candles, the wreaths, the, the holly, uh, the, the Christmas trees with stars on top and presents underneath. I love the get-togethers, the, the time with family and friends, and of course, let's not forget the food, all the, the sweet things. And many of you will go home today to a, a feast of turkey or ham and mashed potatoes and gravy, cranberry sauce and pumpkin pie. Got to have pumpkin pie. More than all of that, of course, I love the, the Christian focus of Christmas, the nativity scenes, the Christmas carols and hymns, the richness of the scripture passages that are read, recited, or sung, which tell us the true meaning of Christmas, that God has come in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ, to save us from bondage to sin and death. Do you still have a, a sense of wonder about this amazing thing that we celebrate at Christmas? Or is it commonplace? Been there, done that, know the story by heart. What else is there to learn? See, it's possible for something to become so familiar to us, so commonplace that, that we lose any sense of wonder, any sense of curiosity about it. And so we miss it altogether. The scientist and physician Lewis Thomas once said, the more we learn, the more we are or ought to be dumbfounded. In his essay titled On Bewilderment, after describing how the first brain cell appears in the human body, Thomas's, uh, Thomas says, all the information needed for learning to read and write, playing the piano, or the marvelous act of putting out one hand and leaning against a tree is contained in that first cell. And Thomas wrote that essay a number of years ago. Uh, he died in 1993, but he spent a lifetime, day in and day out, studying the human body and brain cells. And he ended his essay on this note of praise. He said, if anyone succeeds in explaining it within my lifetime, I will charter a skywriting plane, maybe a whole fleet of them, and send them aloft to write out one great exclamation point after another until all my money runs out. That's the kind of response that Christmas calls for. Do we respond with awe and wonder to the birth of the Savior? I wonder uh, if we really take the time to, to ponder and think about the significance in the, uh, uh, the, uh, the incarnation, the implications of that, God's favor, his goodwill toward human beings. And I think if, I think if we really stop to think about those things, then we, like Thomas, would want to charter a whole fleet of skywriting planes and send them up to write out one great exclamation point after another. Because let's face it, we need a Savior. I hope you all sense that need deeply. Even a cursory look at the news tells us that we live in a world where something has gone terribly wrong. There's conflict and strife all over the world. This year alone, we've seen the Arab Spring, the shooting of Gabby Giffords, the killing of Osama bin Laden, and war in Libya, and the killing of Muammar Gaddafi. We've seen Occupy Wall Street and the Penn State sex abuse scandal. There's constant drama in Hollywood. We seem to get a steady stream of details about the messed up lives of various movie stars. Lilo, the Kardashians, Ashton and Demi, and the list goes on and on. But it's not just the lives of movie stars or famous people that are in shambles, is it? We each know personally or have been touched in some way 
by the turmoil that marks our fallen world. Ours is a world that's filled with rejection and brokenness. Broken relationships abound. Families are fragmented and torn apart. Husbands and wives trudge along stoically with painful emotional distance between them. Parents agonize and grieve over a wayward son or daughter. Friends betray one another. All of us are in some way broken. Many of us are deeply broken. Anxiety and depression seem to be on the rise. We live with deep frustration much of the time, both with others and with ourselves. There are a lot of people out there who don't make life easy for us, and we often find ourselves disappointed when others don't live up to our expectations. But we so often fail to live up to our own expectations. All too often, we make our own lives miserable. No matter how hard I try, I can't get it right, we say, whether we're talking about our relationship with another person or about our own efforts to do what's right, to be good, to live a wholesome, productive life. The fact is, we need a Savior. Sadly, many of us continue to try to live in our own strength. We try to get it right on our own without any help from God or others. I saw a cartoon once of a lady talking to her pastor after a church service, and she's shaking his hand, and she just says, uh, Pastor, my, husband's, uh, my husband you know, didn't come to church today. He said he's been reasonably righteous this week. Reasonably righteous. That's how a lot of people view their relationship with God. They think that as long as they've been reasonably righteous, as long as their good deeds outweigh their bad deeds in the balance of things, then all's good. God will be pleased with them. Every major world religion, apart from Christianity, adheres to some form of self-salvation. You have to earn it. Your good deeds have to outweigh your bad deeds, that sort of thing. People all over the world feverishly do all kinds of, of things in their efforts to earn points with God so that he will have mercy on them in the end. And you know... We in the church aren't immune to that kind of thinking. It tends to be subtle in the church, but it's there. A lot of us, even as Christians, try in subtle ways to earn our, our, our way into favor with God. We don't understand or see the need for grace. We see ourselves as capable, can-do people, confident in our own goodness. John Wesley once said, nothing is more repugnant to capable people than grace. Capable people serve on church committees. They teach Sunday school. They lead Bible studies. Capable people maintain a strict devotional life, maybe. They give generously to the church or to charities. Capable people volunteer in the community in some way. And capable people work hard in their jobs and treat their family well. And you know, all of those things are great things. They're wonderful. It's good that we do those things. But if in doing them we are trying to gain God's blessing and inheritance, then we're missing the mark. And as Paul says, Christ will be of no benefit to us. That's the message that Paul gives us in the book of Galatians here. See, the Galatian Christians had gladly accepted and received the message of the gospel of salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. But somewhere along the line, they became convinced that Christ alone wasn't enough. They started to think that their salvation depended, at least in some measure, on keeping certain parts of the Jewish law. Paul takes them to task on it. He says in chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, he says, I'd like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? He reminds the Galatians and all of us that no one is saved by observing the law. All our good deeds, all of our worthy endeavors, if they are done in our own strength, if, if they're an effort on our part to earn God's favor, then they are as filthy rags next to the perfect law of God. 
Rather, the law clearly shows us God's perfect standard of righteousness and opens our eyes to the depth of our own sinfulness and our complete inability to earn God's favor by our own effort. And so the law, if we're seeking to be saved by observing it, is really a death sentence for us because no one can observe the law perfectly. Instead, the law is designed to point us to Christmas and to Christ, the promised seed of Abraham. Paul reminds us that long before the law ever came, God made a promise to Abraham that he would have a son, an heir. And Abraham believed God, and God credited it to him as righteousness. Of course, the immediate fulfillment of God's promise of an heir for Abraham was the birth of Isaac. But ultimately, the scriptures tell us that this promise to Abraham was fulfilled in Christ, in a baby born in a manger in Bethlehem. So Paul argues that, that righteousness comes from believing God and trusting in his promised heir, Jesus Christ. Galatians 4, 1 to 3 basically says that the law then served as a guardian. Anyone who lived under the law of Moses before Christ came were like a child who was under the care of a guardian, even though he technically owns the whole estate. That child is essentially no different from a slave. He lives under the regulations and the restrictions that are placed on him by his guardian, and he's not given freedom until, until he is old enough to assume the full rights of an adult son. Legally, the whole estate belongs to him, but he has no power to do anything with it until he reaches the specific age and time set by his father for him to assume that responsibility. Well, Paul uses this analogy essentially to tell us that the coming of Christ was the, the coming of age, so to speak, for those under the law. Galatians 4.4 4 says, and here's the heart of the Christmas message, but when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. The Son of God left the glory of heaven and entered our sinful world as a tiny baby. He took our nature. He lived our life. He endured our temptations, experienced our sorrows, felt our hurts, bore our sins, and died our death. He penetrated deeply into our humanness, as John Stott, uh, John Stott says. Jesus voluntarily took on himself the curse of the law that we had incurred by our own inability and failure to obey it. And so ultimately, Christmas points beyond the stable and the manger to the cross and to the resurrection and to Pentecost. Jesus made our punishment his own and he rescued us from the curse of the law, from sin and death, and made it possible for us to become sons of God. Through Christ, we are no longer children under the guardianship of the law, but full adults taking our rightful place in God's family. But that's not all. There's more good news. He goes on to say, because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. You see, God desires not only to redeem us, he wants to be in close, intimate, personal relationship with us. He wants us to know his heart and to cry out to him with our every need. God sent his son to redeem us and give us the status of sons and he, and he sent the spirit of his son to renew us and give us the character of his son. And he's given us the spirit of his son to assure us of the grand inheritance that is ours as his dearly loved children. We are now heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. That's good news. There's a story that's been attributed to the great preacher Fred Craddock. 
It's been told and retold so many times that I honestly don't know if it's true, and I honestly don't know if Fred Craddock ever even told it. But I want to share it with you this morning because it illustrates the message very well. It is said that Fred Craddock, while lecturing at Yale University, told of going back one summer to Gatlinburg, Tennessee, to take a short vacation with his wife. One night they, often, uh, one night they found a, a quiet little restaurant where they, they were hoping for kind of a private meal, just the two of them, enjoy the atmosphere, that kind of thing. Well, while they were waiting for their meal, they noticed a distinguished-looking white-haired man moving from table to table, visiting the guests. Craddock whispered to his wife, I hope he doesn't come over here. He didn't want the man to intrude on their privacy. But, of course, the man did come to their table. Where are you folks from, he asked. Oklahoma. Splendid state, I hear, although I've never been there. What do you do for a living? I teach homiletics at the Graduate Seminary of Phillips University. Oh, so you teach preachers, do you? Well, I've got a story I want to tell you. And he pulled up a chair and sat down at the table with Craddock and his wife. And Dr. Craddock said he groaned inwardly. Oh, no. Here comes another preacher story. Everybody seems to have one. The man stuck out his hand and said, I'm Ben Hooper. I was born not far from here across those mountains over there. My mother wasn't married when I was born, so I had a hard time. When I started to school, my classmates had a name for me, and it wasn't a very nice name. I used to go off by myself during recess and lunchtime because the taunts of my playmates cut so deeply. What was worse was going downtown on Saturday afternoon and feeling every eye burning a hole through, through me. They were all wondering just who my real father was. When I was in my early teens, a new preacher came to our church. I would always go in late and slip out early. But one day, the preacher said the benediction so fast, I got caught, and I had to walk out with everyone else. And just about the time I got to the door, I felt a big hand on my shoulder. And I looked up, and sure enough, it was the preacher looking right at me, studying me. I felt the old weight coming on me. I knew what he was doing. He was going to make a guess at, as to who my father was. Even the preacher was putting me down. But as he looked down at me, studying my face, he began to smile, a big smile of recognition. Wait a minute, he said. I know you. I know exactly who you are. I see the family resemblance. You are a child of God. And with that, he slapped me on the back and said, boy, you've got a great inheritance. Go and claim that inheritance. And with that, the old man smiled, and he shook hands with Craddock and his wife, and he moved on to another table to greet other friends. And suddenly, Fred Craddock remembered. On two different occasions, the people of Tennessee had elected an illegitimate son to be their governor, and one of them was named Ben Hooper, a man with a great inheritance. See, the good news for you and I on this Christmas morning is that in Christ, we are sons and daughters of God. We have a great inheritance. God sent his son into this world to redeem us and to adopt us as sons. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts to renew us and to give us the character of his son. That's the great message of Christmas. Christmas is in the air. I encourage you to ponder this amazingly great news today. Meditate on it, and by all means, share it. Charter the skywriting plane and, and send them up. The Christmas message has everything to do, by the way, with the mission of the church, because this is news the world needs to hear more than anything. Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Just as God in Christ became incarnate, so our ministry to the world must be incarnational. So go and be the hands and feet of Jesus, the body of Christ, in Houghton and throughout all the world. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for giving us Jesus, your Son, our Savior. We thank you for all that we celebrate during this time of year, 
during Christmas. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would enable us through the power of your Holy Spirit to walk with you and to live as people with a great inheritance. And we thank you that you are the giver of that great inheritance, the one in whom lies all of our hope. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I want to invite you to take your hymnal, turn to number 115, and stand with me for joy to the world. Receive the benediction this morning. <clears throat> May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forever. Amen. Go and peace.